Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 147, recorded on May 19th of 2021. Uh, the show where I'm Don Kamarechka, your host, and I geek out about photo news stuff every week, uh, usually with a co-host. And uh, I am pleased to welcome back a voice that I uh, much respect in the photo industry, especially in the video uh, industry. Uh, I have Jordan Drake of DP Review TV here with me today. Jordan, uh, long time no talk. How it's are been you? far too long. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to this. Yes, uh, thanks for being back on the show. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I might even have you on briefly on the next episode as well. Uh, but can't talk about that. We got no. a lot of talk, a lot of stuff to talk about uh, this week. And um, before we get into that, though, uh, you know, I've uh, I, you know. We've been working uh, together with DP Review TV, and, and hopefully that continues in the future. That project has been on hiatus due to the pandemic, as so many things in our lives uh, have been. Um, it's been, I think I, last time we saw in, uh, each other in person was February of... Right uh, before. That was the last time I, yeah, was in an airplane, was out to go visit you. Yeah, and uh, glad we snuck that one in, and yeah. we got some Just uh, under good the recordings wire. in, but... Uh, we haven't talked much since, and you have been on a few shows, but what, what's been your daily routine through all of this? I mean, just doing DP Review has been keeping me pretty busy. It's essentially a full-time job and more, uh, but it's a very interesting challenge when uh, here in Alberta, we've had a big spike, so the kids are back home right now. So uh, they were in school for the first half of the year, and uh, that's definitely... Uh, changed the way I work a little bit. It's a lot of burning the midnight oil now, uh, as opposed to burning the morning oil. I don't know if that's an expression, uh, but yeah, we're still uh, there's. It hasn't slowed down camera releases at all. I thought with the pandemic, a lot of these manufacturers would hold off on some major announcements. But I mean, yeah, we've had flagship cameras coming out, uh, major video models. It's we've been very, very busy. The real trick is just, you know, where do you test all this? It's not like we're going to beautiful exotic locales for a while. So it's or a lot you're of, not going into, you know, downtown urban packed centers to practice your street photography. Not right a lot now. of concert photography uh, in this series <laughs> this year. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that's been definitely a bit of a struggle and having less guests on the show, but I'm I'm hoping, hoping that now that everybody's starting to get their vaxes, that we can open the show back up a little bit more again and get. Have you gotten yours yet? Uh, I get my first tomorrow. Fantastic! Congratulations! I get my first earliest available appointment was June 9th. So uh, I'm still a few weeks away from uh, from that luxury. Um, but uh, who knows? Uh, the world is on the mend right now, and it makes <laughs> me feel better. I'm in a better headspace all throughout, which is. Fun to talk about some of the uh, the stories that we have here. So let's just dive in. And uh, story number one um, is strange. I mean, it, okay, so uh, Peak Design Marketplace, this is reported by DP Review, uh, is going to be a peer-to-peer marketplace for selling, buying, used gear, US only for now. Um, and being, you know, piloted by Peak Design, it's only for peak design hardware. Um, so <laughs> as if you needed this, I don't know if anybody was asking for this, but um, there, there's some videos and they're in the, the article, which will be linked to at, at DP Review uh, and at Photo Geek Weekly. But uh, 
I'll just read a paragraph here. As Peak Design explains in the above video, selling gear on the Peak Design Marketplace is a three-step process. First, you'll want to ensure your bag or accessory is registered on the Peak Design's website. Obviously, data mining, that's perfect. I mean, yep. I know Peak Design wants all of your information. Uh, what successful company wouldn't, but just understand you know, you're giving them more than just your information. It's going to become a marketing tool for them. Um, once registered, if it hasn't been already, the next step is to create a listing, uh, which includes providing uh, product photos and information. Peak Design reiterates the importance of being honest in your descriptions and highlighting information you'd want to know about the gear if you were the buyer. Once purchased, the final step is to ship out the item within three days, collect the payment through Peak Design's platform, because they're holding that, uh, uh, and I guess can reverse transactions just like eBay can and everything else. Uh, pricing is up to you. Uh, now, this is where it gets interesting, because when you receive the payment from your item, you can choose to keep the entire amount as a Peak Design store credit, Mm. or have 25% withheld if you prefer it in cash. Peak Design says the 25% goes towards covering the cost of its payment processor uh, 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 recurates services. Now, I don't know of any payment processor that charges 25% for a transaction. I mean, usually the Visa and MasterCard rates are between 2 and 3%. I know Amex is a little bit more. But that that's that kind of sums it up. What, what's your thoughts of this peak design initiative? Uh, it the only reason it makes any sense whatsoever. There is an interesting little thing in there that they will allow you to pass your lifetime warranties from one buyer to another, and that yes, is that, the that big could be useful. Uh, so definitely, if I were to buy one used, that would make a ton of sense for me to carry over a lifetime warranty and save a little money on it. For the sellers, though, I mean. I just, yeah, it, it does definitely seem to just be a cash and like you mentioned, an information grab. Uh, but uh, I don't really know of any alternatives from anyone else if you're looking to carry over a lifetime warranty. I know uh, there were some binoculars and tripods back when I worked at the camera store where when parents came in, they said, like, put the warranty under your kid's name, not your own uh, for that. <laughs> That's uh, a smart move. But uh yeah, that, that's the only reason I could think of this being vaguely useful, but I totally agree. I think like 25% is absolutely insane for them to take off cash sales. So uh, It reminds me uh, in another life when I worked at EB Games, uh, which is now a, a subsidiary of GameStop. And uh, you know, the, the trade-in market for video games was really lucrative for them because they were basically stealing from people. Uh, in games. terms of yeah. the, uh, yeah, uh, it, because, you know, you would sell them a game for $3, but you didn't actually get $3. You got that in store credit, and they would in turn turn it around for, you know, a $19.99 sale. And, and so that was hugely profitable. Um, but it was also one of the only ways people knew, at least at that time, uh, before internet marketplaces became much more mainstream, that, uh, yeah, you could sell it yourself for mm -hmm. uh, exactly what it would be worth as a used, uh, as a used game. Um, and, and that, that's not to say that this is the same, but it does kind of have that, you know, that, the 25% bugs me quite mm -hmm. a bit. And from Peak Design's perspective, there could be some really interesting, um, uh, I guess, 
market research that comes out mm -hmm. of this, right? Because if they get images of their products that have damage and dings, uh, and they notice that this particular zipper always broke, or this seam was always tearing, or this particular material scuffed and broke apart more than others, then that's also valuable information for them to see exactly how their equipment is surviving or not out in the wild. And you know what? If that makes Peak Design come up with a new line of products that's actually better than the current generation of products, I, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that would be an asset for any company to have that kind of information that I don't think that they would really be able to gather honestly in any other way. Um, so yeah, but, but it's strange because it's just Peak Design. It's as if Canon opened up their own used marketplace or Nikon or Sony. And, and I they could were, totally see Canon doing that as a side. Oh, oh Canon could. Yeah, they, they, they love all the proprietary everything. Um, I, I don't know how many of their proprietary services last longer than a year, though. So um, who knows? <laughs> Uh, that, that's our lead story because it's just strange. And anybody with peak design equipment, like I, I love my, my peak design tripod, the travel tripod. Yeah. Uh, I have one I, as well. I use it regularly and, uh, even for big full frame, uh, uh, SLR or well, mirrorless cameras, but, uh, the big bodies, uh, it handles them perfectly fine. And I really quite enjoy it. I don't have any other bags though. Maybe this is, uh, the impetus for me to say, okay, well, let's just get one in really good condition used and, uh, save myself Test a couple of bucks. Yeah. They're super yeah. trendy. I do want the head on the, uh, travel tripod fixed immediately when you're shooting in portrait orientation. That drives me crazy that you're so restricted as soon as you flip it into portrait mode. But who knows? Uh, yeah. It's coming. I, I also, I don't like the fact that the locking mechanism uh, for locking the camera in place and the locking mechanism for the ball head yes. operate in the same direction. Yeah. So you can accidentally unlock the camera from the quick release plate while you're trying to unlock the ball head, uh, or you might forget one in one orientation or the other. And it just doesn't work well for me. I did get, uh, and this was back through their Kickstarter campaign, um, the adapter to put your own ball head yeah. on it. And I have been waiting patiently for uh, the Platyball um, from Platypod. And uh, apparently they're, they're going to be having early review samples out at some point soon. Uh, and I might be able to get my hands on one of those and I'll let sure. you know how that, uh, how that all shakes out because that it, it looks, it, I'll be honest. It looks kind of like a, a motorcycle engine. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting, unique design. Um, but uh, from having my hands on, it was in January of 2020, uh, I had an early uh, prototype where they were just trying to figure everything out. I'm going to really like that. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. But anyhow, I'll fight for a prototype uh, as well. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that's going off on on a tangent. But uh, that's what this show is all about. So uh, Jordan, as um, uh, as a uh, a Pentax devotee, mm, uh, yes. as uh, an unabated fanboy of the Pentax brand, um, <laughs> And you're you're smiling. You're you're, you're trying to hold there's back the last. There's uh there's some context there for sure, which you can find out about uh, in a series of episodes from this year. But again, I like Pentax products. Pentax photographers and I have a very um, 
a rough assorted history uh us um i mean they're not particularly video centric cameras that's part of it but uh yeah i mean i do i was just out shooting with a k33 it's kind of it's fun to shoot with a high-end dslr again as a novelty but man those forums have to add that to the end those, those yeah exactly yeah um, so Canon patents an in-body image stabilization powered anti-alias simulation tech similar to Pentax, which is where I was going with this. And Pentax has had this for quite some time. I can't remember what their first camera um, uh, to use it was, but the, uh, the, the K33 that you were just mm-hmm. uh, referencing does have this feature in it as well as with previous cameras. So this is kind of the opposite of uh, the high resolution modes that you would find in uh, Panasonic, uh, Olympus, Sony, and in some cases, Fuji cameras, uh, and possibly more to come. Uh, and I think that some some way to use the image stabiliz- uh, stabilization system inside the camera body itself to shift pixels around for one reason or another is going to be much more commonplace. Um, in the case of removing the, uh, the anti-aliasing filter, you know, uh, Canon famously came out with the, um, the, was it the 5DR? 5DSR. Um, yeah. 5DSR. Uh, and, uh, that camera had a, uh, removal of the anti-aliasing filter, but you had the version with it as well. And maybe it was just a market study for Canon to see which one people gravitated towards and what the results of, uh, of the reviews would say. Um, but more often now it's just no anti-aliasing filter is, is on their cameras. Um, but that means you've got some jaggy edges in certain cases. You've got some moiré that mm-hmm. will be entered in, uh, which can be distracting and uh, frankly annoying because it's kind of hard to fix that stuff in post, uh, at least traditionally. So you can reintroduce a softness to your image if the sharpness is too jaggy based on the technology of a Bayer pattern camera sensor. Um does that make sense compared to the high resolution mode that quadruples your resolution from which you can then just kind of scale things down if yeah. you want? Um, because, you know, I've been using the, the high res mode on my uh, Lumix cameras for quite some time. And in fact, it's actually been quite the asset for macro photography because I can get further away from my subject, uh, which gives me a greater depth of field shoot in the high res mode and then crop the heck in on it, uh, which still has more than enough resolution. And that allows me to get um, exactly what I'm after in an image. And I don't really have with organic subjects the the same problems that an anti-aliasing filter uh, would correct for. But I did notice also that Adobe uh, with their latest enhancements to the, uh, the camera raw, they've got uh, an enhanced details feature for raw files that if I look at some of those images that have little jaggy bits that are a bit, you know, uh, uh, obstructive to the, the final resulting image, mm-hmm. it fixes those moderately. I mean, not perfectly, but there's advances in that technology as well. Uh, wh- wh- how do you feel about this? Is this the right direction or is this just a direction that's not right or wrong? Well, it really depends on the camera because uh, I remember the one time I did find that AA simulation useful. And I have to mention, like, we didn't get a ton of time with the K3 Mark III, so I didn't get as much time to test it as I would usually like. Um, but when we did the uh, K1, which was a 36 megapixel full frame body, 
um, that did actually, we were actually able to get some moire uh, in, with some fabric patterns and things like that. And the AA simulation did get rid of that. You know, you're softening your image. But the big advantage is you mentioned you can use pixel shift to get away from those issues with moire, and that's absolutely true. But if you've got a moving subject, that's not going to help you at all. What this actually does is very slightly shifts the sensor at the moment that you pop the shutter. Uh, so you can still use it with moving subjects, which is quite cool. The thing is, sensors are getting more and more pixel dense all the time. Like I could see this being quite useful on something like a Canon R6 that's a full frame 20 megapixels, because um, that's where they're going to be more prone to moire, which is why that camera has an anti-aliasing filter. Uh, but now we've got Canons at 45 megapixels. Even that Pentax K3 is a crop at 26 megapixels. It's really rare you're going to run into issues uh, where you'd need an anti-aliasing filter for that. So I almost feel like this is a problem that's just going to resolve itself as we get more and more pixel-dense sensors. Well, and at full frame, uh, I think that the current um, king is 60 megapixels, but that's going to change too. I mean, as time goes on, new cameras come out, higher resolution sensors, and it becomes less and less of an issue. Uh, but even still, I would like to have both of these features in whatever my next camera is. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to have um, this uh, anti-aliasing filter simulator, but I'd also like to have the high resolution mode. And I can choose based on my subject and based on what I'm trying to shoot, how best to modify the results right off of the sensor in order to shoot for the highest res or to shoot for, um, you know, the, the, the perfect image that doesn't require that, that for some reason Moiré might have been a problem with, um, which... Again, I've never really had much of an issue. I, I'm wearing a, a striped, almost checkered shirt right here. If you were to, you know, throw me in the um, distant in background, the, uh, yeah, in the distant background, that might be an issue uh, in, in a street photograph. But then I'm not the subject. Then I don't really matter anyhow. So yeah, no, uh, I think it's it useful tech, like you said, just to have the option. You know, if you're going out and doing a commercial fashion shoot or something like that, hell yeah, throw that AA filter on. But otherwise, it's not going to impede your sharpness. It, as Like you mentioned with the 5DSR, I'd rather not have to choose which of the two versions of a camera I want, where one might be less ideal in a given situation. So I think it's smart. I think it's great. Uh, if they can make it work, that's fine. But I just don't think it's going to be that useful on the majority of new cameras. This is true, but I, I love when cameras have all of these niche features that we don't use. I, I mean, somebody somewhere has a use for, and and it's there, and it's available, and, and I'm glad for it, but um, you know, I, if I don't need it, it doesn't hurt me. Uh, it just, it, if I ever do, it's just a part of my toolkit. The interesting thing about it, though, is Canon has patented uh, something similar to Pentax, mm -hmm. and that's where things get a bit sticky for me, because now this technology is patent encumbered by at least two companies, right? There's the one company has found a way to do it. Another company has found a slightly different way to do it that they can also patent. How many other ways will you be able to uh, implement this type of technology? Otherwise you would have to license the patent from either uh, Rico who owns Pentax uh, or from Canon. And I'm not sure how much cross brand patent licensing is happening anymore. And so that might mean that other companies, if they can't find yet a third or fourth way to do this, might not be able to include that feature, even if you did want it simply from a cost mechanism, you don't want to pay your competition money. Hmm. Well, I think Pentex should just license it to all other camera companies. So Pentex can get some money. I think that <laughs> <laughs> there is one thing I wanted to get your take on this. Uh, 
because you are the king of macro. Um, Pentax has an option when you're on a tripod where you can shift the sensor to recompose slightly that I thought actually sounded like it might be quite interesting. If you're doing extreme close-up work, your sensor is not moving very much, you know, a few millimeters in every direction. But is that something you could see yourself doing? You know, you can even use it, uh, slightly shift the frame and stitch without moving the sensor, almost like a shift lens. Is that something you would ever use? Because I was having a tough time thinking of a good practical use for that. Uh I never needed to use it before, but if I had it and I was doing extreme close-up work, and I'm talking like using microscope objectives, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 10 times magnification and beyond, then that could actually be useful because any movement of the camera or the subject is going to be drastic. Yeah. And especially if I could control that adjustment via an external device, like a smartphone with a, a camera remote control app, um, and then I could readjust my framing, that would be perfect because otherwise I'd either have to have my subject on a horizontal ra- rail, my camera on a horizontal rail, um, or uh, just try to, and I've done this uh, when I was photographing micrometeorites, um, I've used a toothpick just to nudge the uh, the surface that they're on, just to just try to poke it just ever so slightly, just barely make contact in order to make it shift a fraction of a millimeter back into the frame because that would be the easiest transition to make. Mm-hmm. And so if I was able to move the sensor around a little bit, that would solve the problem. Um, so yes, in okay. some very, very narrow uses that only I and a dozen other people on the planet would have, could be fun. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I found a person. That's great. There you go. Uh, Hey, speaking of of macro work, I I have a a prototype lens in my possession that I'm actually able to talk about. Um, This is, this is, this is fun. So this is a, uh, a probe lens from Venus Optics who makes the Laowa brand of lenses. And I asked them if they were doing anything interesting with their probe lens technology because I have their first one that's commercially available. They sent yeah. me a link to something that uh, was publicly posted uh, and uh, they actually wanted me to talk about it if, if I cared for it. Um, they're making variations on that probe lens. And I don't know exactly what's going to end up into final production. Um, but the one that I have here is on an angle. So it's using first surface mirrors in order to shift the, uh, the actual direction of the light. So I don't know Hmm. if that's about a 45 degree angle or so that I have on, on this one. Um, but, uh, you know, while I, it's funny because while I can talk about having this lens in, in my possession, um, I can't actually talk about what I'm shooting right now because I'm using it for a documentary film that I'm under an NDA. And most of the time, whenever I'm on a big project or I get some fancy gear, as you know, Jordan, there are non-disclosure agreements that prevent us from talking about it. But this is something that they're just they're working on. Uh, and I don't know how much it will cost. I have no idea when it will be out, if it will be out. But they are really taking that probe lens technology uh, in hand. And it says waterproof on it. Hopefully that's accurate. I, I'm not sure if I'm willing to test it because I'm seeing screws and stuff on the back of this thing that I don't know if it's properly gasketed um, being a prototype and all. But, well, I'm sure uh, part of that's probably just the same original tube as the first probe lens right till you hit the end and that was waterproof so it, i think well, you're making it, the right call don't risk in it. a different font Ooh, uh, never mind. and uh so i don't know exactly what they're doing here but this one says sample two on it 
so that assumes that there's also a sample one and possibly we got to find out who has sample one <laughs> actually i saw a photo of some of the other samples that, that they just have different angles and stuff i saw a completely different version that actually had a 90 degree angle which i am lusting for because that would be really really cool to like drive the camera uh, almost like um, uh, an, an airplane going over a terrain, mm-hmm. but the camera could go on a focusing rail or very easily motion control pointing straight down over a very complex but tiny subject. Um, so, macro drone uh, shot. Yeah, a macro drone shot type of thing. So I'm I'm really keen on doing some of that for cinema work. Um, so uh, there you go, uh, Laowa. Thank you for uh, not making me uh, sign away to silence on the fact that I'm using this lens for production work right now. Um, and just before we were recording this episode, uh, I was I was using it connected to a Ninja V for uh, you know, 5.9K uh, ProRes RAW recording and haven't looked at the footage yet but it's it's looking pretty promising so cool there's my uh there's my little um kind of uh i I don't know divergence Uh, because most of my days right now jordan um they're spent packing books and i've got probably near a thousand ready to ship uh i haven't shipped them yet because canada post uh is just i in fact about 20 minutes before we started recording, uh, they approved my contract for discounted rates. So tomorrow I will be in shipping label printing mode, which will also be sanity uh, compromising. But it's less backbreaking. <laughs> so that's a perk, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. So those of you that have pre-ordered my book, thank you very much for that. And uh, a colleague of mine, a fellow macro photographer, uh, Stuart Wood, just did an unboxing video that I might also link to in the show notes because I was able to send him a couple of copies, uh, one that he's giving away. Um, and uh, just to kind of spread the other uh, word of the book getting out there. And thanks for everyone's patience in that happening. Um, let's go on to our next story. Um Xiaomi patents a modular smartphone with interchangeable cameras. Jordan, your thoughts. <sighs> okay, so let's look at I'm I'm gonna use the iPhone as a because it's just a very common uh set of phones without a whole lot of variables to them. Um they have had the same main camera, one over 1.7 inch sensor for I think about five years now, uh, except there is a new uh the Pro Plus with a larger sensor. And the image quality keeps getting better. And it's not because of the lens and the sensor that's in the back of that making all the difference. The reason that all of this smartphone photography keeps improving is the technology in the phone itself. Uh, so they, the main thing with this is they talk about it as a means of like, oh, there'll be less waste and stuff like that. You can just update your camera and your phone, all that. But that's no, it's the, you need the new guts of the new processor and all the new hardware in order to process these images in an interesting way. It's not which array of lenses that you have on those. And I was kind of thinking like, well, maybe I could see like you could have one good wide angle and one good telephoto module that you could swap in and out. But that still doesn't make any sense because then you don't have a depth map anymore. So you're still going to need an array of lenses. I, I, I don't I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, Don. They show they show a few options here. Um, one with three lenses and uh, an additional sensor could be a proximity or LIDAR or something. And uh, 
uh, and, and that's below it. Or another one that has three lenses in a, in a square array uh, that also has a flash. Um, all of them have uh, flashes, but is missing that whatever that extra sensor would be. Um, and then they have a third one that has three cameras, a flash, and a screen that would be on the backside of the phone. Yeah. Um, I guess if you want to take selfies with the primary cameras on the phone rather than the front-facing camera, then that might make more sense if you're over, uh, you know, looking for the, the best possible selfie quality. Right. Um, I think that's what that purpose might be designed in. Um, but no. No, don't don't do this because computational photography is quickly taking over, and the entirety of the camera has to make um, make that leap forward. Yeah. Sort of like um, uh, Rico had the what was it the GXR GXR yeah the interchangeable modules that had both the lens and the sensor uh, that could be replaced, but uh, all the uh, user interface and like the body of the camera and the processor etc. were all the same. The processor was the that, big one, yeah. Yeah, but the, the thing about that is you, you kind of get yourself stuck because then you have to have new iterations of the body of the phone with better processors to handle new modules properly. Otherwise, this is an ecosystem that will exist for two years. And if you buy into it, you will so quickly be outdated and this will be, in my experience, completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, while it purports to be something that will uh, allow you to do incremental updates, fundamentally, you you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's not going to be one of those things. It's, it's not like buying a new lens for your camera. It's not like buying a new accessory, like a battery grip for your camera that improves your battery life or something. Um, it's, it's not, it's, in my opinion, it's not a good idea, but mm-hmm. I also want it to exist because I want to see what novel uses people come up with this. And, and I want to see if there's some, and this could be the, the key for me. Uh, and it was kind of, uh, I, I guess, a curiosity on the uh, the screen on the back. I, well, I don't want that, but that's unique. Not many smartphones have screens on both sides. What really strange modules could possibly exist Right. Like what if you could slide in a a, a thermal imaging module? Right. I mean, you could have industrial uses that could uh, find a very successful niche where, okay, you've got a a perfectly viable flagship smartphone device. uh, So it's more than capable in the era from which it's purchased. Uh, But you could put in those industrial elements that are unique to a specific industry, but people would normally be paying a heck of a lot more for such a device. Yeah, or you could get the 3D module, which I know you would be all over. Yes, absolutely. Uh, or an infrared module, uh, for that matter, you know, to just play around with things that uh, just kind of break boundaries around. Um, it does look like the charging port thing on the bottom. This is based on maybe it's patents. I'm seeing just the drawings. The charging port thing on the bottom is separate. The main guts of the device is separate. And then the uh, the top part is separate. But in those drawings it doesn't indicate the screen, right? Mm-hmm. You would assume that the screen transcends them all. And in some of the uh, the, the proper 3D modelings, uh, it looks like the screen is, at least at the flagship, um, uh, the, the, the beginning photo in the article here on Petapixel. Uh, 
it looks like there's still a screen that's a separate thing. So I'm not even sure what they're going to do here. If these are all sliding modules, but then the screen gets segmented into three separate screens with lines in between it, that would be quite distracting. Yeah. You'd want the screen to be intact. Um, but then that screen, when a module is not attached to it, is super, super thin and is a possible break point. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, uh, I, I think that there's some potential in uh, in industrial or uh, very specific uh, applications that would normally cost a lot more money to build an entire device around it. Um, I don't think this is going to be a consumer success. No, I, I also think um, this ties into something that I'm really advising people with if they're buying a camera nowadays. We never used to think about processors. As I wasn't like, oh, this Canon has the new uh, Digic processor. That's really important. But now with firmware updates, I mean, look at Nikon Z series as a great example. Uh, all of their Z6, Z7 cameras have tapped out what they can do with their current processors. The version twos are essentially the same cameras with dual processors in them. So they can do more with that. Uh, it's almost a really good incentive to just see, you know, how far along the road the processor in your camera actually is. Uh, Cause I think we're going to start seeing quite a few updates this year which are just processor updates and all the benefits that that brings with it as opposed to you know higher frame per second or higher megapixels or something so it's something people don't think about a lot but it's worth keeping an eye on yeah i was just shooting with the uh, the lumix s1 and s1r recently um doing i've got an s1 that's modified for full spectrum photography and i was doing some ultraviolet reflectance images of flowers um, and I actually have an idea that might be a complete failure, but, um, the flowers were in bloom. I had to do it then. And so I photographed them in ultraviolet reflectance, which is the direct capture of UV light. You have to have a full spectrum modified camera, a quartz optic lens and special filters. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it's, uh, there are patterns that insects can see that we cannot uh, in certain cases, but then simultaneously switching to my S1R, um, and shooting, uh, visible light images and ultraviolet fluorescence images. So I've got a set of three that I'm going to try to somehow mesh together, um, in post-processing, see if I could find some way to combine them into something visually interesting. Um, but I was using that high resolution mode as we were talking about. And, uh, I, I don't know if it's exactly the same processor in the S1 and the S1R, uh, but they came out at the same time and, and they're mm -hmm. kind of based on the same framework. Uh, the uh, high res images process faster on the S1. Obviously, they're smaller files, uh, 96 megapixels versus 187 megapixels on the S1R. So, uh, you know, you just see the progress bar on the on the back taking longer on the bigger file. And even if the upgrade to whatever the next camera is going to be makes that progress bar complete faster, or maybe is, isn't even there to begin with, because it just happens so quickly, you can just get back to regular, you know, uh, photo work. Um, I'd be happy. And yeah. that's totally a processor limitation right there as well. All right, here we go. Next story. This one is for you, Jordan. Uh, these stories came across the, uh, the the news wire, as it were. Um, Tokina has announced a twenty-five to seventy-five millimeter T two point nine cinema lens for a dollar less than five thousand uh, dollars, which is pretty pricey for Tokina as a brand, which is usually positioned more of a budget uh, type of brand. And not to say that it's bad, but no. you know, th their price tags usually have a zero knocked off of that. 
Um, and also, uh, both of these reported by DP Review, wide-angle 1.8x anamorphic lens for full-frame sensors launched by Vazen. And I know that you've had, I think you've had your hands-on lenses from this company yes. in the past, uh, and you've done some experimenting with um, uh, anamorphic uh, cinematography. You know, and of course, that lens is going to cost $8,000. These are not cheap lenses uh, by any means. But the cinema lenses, in this case, it's a 50 millimeter T 2.1 uh, type of lens. Uh, they're very useful for cinematographers that need them. But they're not useful for general photography. And I'd like to not only discuss these two products, but understand um, why... Uh, some people so desperately covet a T-stop when other people could be, couldn't be more apathetic. Totally. Um, well, let's start with each lens. I'll just quickly let you know what I find interesting about them, and then we can uh, go into the weeds on cinema glass. Uh, so the really interesting thing with the Takina lens is you hear uh, that focal range, you're thinking, well, that's your full-frame standard zoom, right? Basically a 24 to 70 lens. Uh, but it's a super 35 lens. So in full-frame terms, we're actually looking at something more like your 36 to 100, uh, which is a really interesting range. Uh, kind of more in that portrait. Certainly, you know, it's not going to do your wide angle establishing shots, things like that, which I found. Right. A very and I'm seeing it with choice. a PL mount. So it's, it's normally designed for uh, traditional cinema cameras and not the um, uh, mirrorless hybrids that might use different mounts like the L mount. Uh, and you can get adapters. I mean, I've got the wonderful NovoFlex uh, PL to L mount adapter right here. Uh, thank you, Panasonic, for loaning that to me. But, uh, but the, uh, the, the difference is substantial because the Super 35 format, and I've got a Super 35 lens somewhere, <laughs> uh, somewhere on my desk as things are just falling apart. Um, I'll find it later. It's a, it's a stereoscopic 3D lens because, of course, that's what I have in, uh, in Super 35. That will soon attach uh, to a smartphone, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but the, the idea is that uh, you've got still uh, a, a, an amazing crop of very expensive cameras that are, you know, probably much higher priced than this lens that yeah. could utilize something like this. Is this filling a niche? Like, have people been clamoring for exactly this type of lens? And is this going to gather the attention of anybody that's shooting with a Super 35 cinema camera? Well, I mean, it all depends on how good it is, but Takina did do a series of Vista Primes that were absolutely spectacular. The weird thing with that is uh, they were full-frame lenses compatible with uh, up to a 55-millimeter sensor. So... Uh, they've really developed a name and like, oh, these guys make great primes for larger formats, but then they bring out this zoom for a smaller format. Uh, now they do have an 11 to 20 PL mount. So that's could kind of be like a sister lens for that. Uh, that I could see making some sense why they chose this slightly longer focal length, but I just don't hear a lot of people clamoring for this range. Most of your standard cinema zooms are going to be that 17 to 70 or 18 to 55, the same kind of thing we see on a lot of crop uh, sensor kit lenses. So it's just a weird choice. I would certainly love to get my hands on one and play with it, but uh, I did find that quite interesting. Um, and what about the uh, the anamorphic lenses? I love those. So uh, I use the uh, 40 millimeter uh, Vazen for micro four thirds, which crops out to be basically a normal lens. Uh, and I had an absolute blast with it. It's not the sharpest lens in the world until you stop it down. 
But what a lot of photographers think about, because you're shooting a square format and then you squeeze it out afterwards in post, which can give you some really interesting characteristics. In the bokeh that would normally be circular now is not. Yeah, uh, you get really weird horizontal flare patterns with it. Uh, which has just been the trademark of big budget Hollywood movies. But the other thing is the sense of movement with the camera is really interesting because, you know, if you just take a picture with this and stretch it out, and I had some fun doing anamorphic photography with this lens with some flare, but where you really start to see the difference is once that camera starts moving and subjects get closer and further away from it. Uh, and there is a real lack of full frame anamorphic glass. I mean, we haven't been using formats that big in filmmaking, uh, especially anamorphically. Generally, it was always spherical glass if you're looking at anim- or, uh, IMAX or something like that. Uh, so they're definitely filling a niche with this. So you're going to get very shallow depth of field at a T2.1. Um, you know, this is uh, 40 millimeter, I believe, as well. Uh, 50 millimeter, uh, 50. 2.1, yeah. Yeah, so this would be equivalent to like a 35 mil full frame lens uh, in terms of the field of view, but super shallow depth of field and an interesting aesthetic. So I think that's really exciting. Uh, the other thing I like with the Vasins is they are quite squeezed. We're seeing a lot of budget anamorphic lenses that are a 1.33. Um, this is 1.8. Yeah. yeah. 1.8 is dramatic. You're really going to see the effect with that. I think a lot of the 1.33s, it's really just a marketing thing. So people can flash their iPhone flashlights at it and see anamorphic streaking. But uh, creatively, it's not giving you that classic anamorphic look uh, from the filmmaking days, which were generally two times anamorphic. So you're very close with this 1.8. But now, covering a full frame sensor so uh it's going to open up some really interesting aesthetics i'm hoping that they can kind of get a line of three lenses out there very quick like an 80 a 50 and a 35 uh and then you could do so you could actually shoot a feature with just those three lenses and see what people come up with yeah and and it's interesting because uh we actually on on a shoot that we had done a while back i think it was on ultraviolet uh, fluorescent stuff um when i had gone to calgary in 2019, I think yeah. uh, you That's had the, the Vasin lens, and, and we we tried uh, we we tried to put extension tubes on it, and That's it right. failed miserably. Yes, uh, because anamorphic lenses are not a singular optical system; they're actually two optical systems stuck together. <laughs> and so, when you put extension tubes on the rear optical system, it totally messes up its focus target for the primary, the front optical system. And so extension tubes are completely incompatible uh, with anamorphic lenses shipping them, uh, shifting them into a macro realm um, for which you would need to use uh, what amounts to incredibly expensive uh, yeah. diopters for the front elements because those um, uh, fronts of those lenses are quite huge. Uh, so yeah, um, and you have to make sure that they're anamorphic compatible as well. Yeah, I mean, we were looking at them just for that phase and because I thought it would be fun to test some close-up stuff with it. And we were looking, you know, on those $4,000 lenses at well over a grand for a single diopter. So, not happening. Yeah. Uh, so I've looked elsewhere. Anamorphic macro photography may come to me in the future, uh, but it's not something that I'm going to be dealing with anytime soon. Uh, too many other irons in the fire. But uh, something else that's interesting to me that uh, when I was writing my book, I, I really, I kind of settled on a point that I don't know if I would have realized if I 
didn't write the book because I had to kind of fill in all the holes and uh, and smooth everything over. It's that f-stops in general um, they're measured at infinity focus and they change. And so by the time you get all the way to one-to-one -one magnification macro, uh, you've actually lost two stops, two f-stops. Uh, and so in the manual for the Canon MPE 65 millimeter macro lens, it says that if you're at one-to-one -one magnification and it can't get any further away than that, and you've set your lens to f2.8, you're actually shooting at f5.6. And so that lens, while the barrel says f2.8, it's lying to you because it can never actually shoot at f2.8, but every single regular photography lens measures their f-stops at infinity focus, and that's where those numbers come from. And they change, the effective aperture changes as you get closer and closer to your subject. Is that the same with T-stops? It is. So a T-stop is still rated. Uh, now, the difference is an F-stop is just an equation of your um, size of your op uh, lens opening to the focal length, where a T-stop is how much light is actually transmitted through it, because we always lose some light coming through a lens. But it's still rated focused at infinity. So, you know, if you do go grab a, they're pretty rare, but a cinema macro uh, that's a T. 2.0, it's still going to be a hell of a lot darker when you're actually focused at one-to-one -one magnification on it. I do still find T-stops as a concept more useful than F-stops. Now, things get a little bit tricky there because you know the amount of light that's transmitted is most important if you're on set and you have multiple cameras and you need them to be the exact same brightness levels. That makes perfect sense. But F-stops are still how we'll calculate depth of field. Um, so T-stops are actually slightly less accurate in terms of that. So you're kind of always, with your cinema lenses, I try to figure out what the F-stop is. And with your, uh, your uh, F-stopped lenses, you want to try and figure out what your T-stop is if you're matching multiple cameras. So I wish they would just put both of them on the box or even just let me choose in the camera because everything's electronic controlled now just let me switch between t-stops and f-stops on the camera to know what i'm looking at but uh both of them aren't a perfect solution but uh yeah it's funny that they're so different it would be interesting if you could uh you mentioned like a multi-camera shoot um to just have the cameras talk to each other and say hey guys i'm at this exposure you got to match me yeah uh in terms of the overall amount of light and with all of the interconnected features on cameras these days i i hope that feature would come uh, there's no reason why it cannot be implemented uh just simply because cameras have bluetooth and wi-fi and and so many other uh connected features some even have ethernet jacks on them um that you could uh, you could even that out and just make it a non-issue in the future. But if you're part of a, a higher-end cinema production, you've already got that figured out. You yep. know exactly how things are going to go. Um, now we're talking about gear. We're talking about expensive lenses. Um, you know, I. I have a lot of expensive lenses. I've got a lot of super cheap lenses as well that I completely beat up. And I've you seen know, your I've, place. You have every lens. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, and you know, I've got I've got some uh, crazy vintage lenses. I've got some very expensive old lenses. I've got some modern lenses that I absolutely love and everything in between. Um, but, you know, I don't take it all with me when I travel. I try to take the things that are the most relevant. But I'm also very cautious about my equipment when I'm traveling far from home. 
So I found another article, uh, this one here on Petapixel, um, you know, uh, the, the title is, I found my own stolen lens for sale online, and there's nothing I can do. Now, uh, this this lens is written by, uh, or this article is written by Nathan uh, Kaulashaw. And you know what, Nathan? It's not really that well written. Uh, it kind of reads as a bit of an ad for you and your love for this particular lens. Uh, it has a forlorn, lost love affair that has gone awry, and you really you know, wish for this back. It's um, like classical literature, really. Yeah. I, and so... The title is somewhat misleading to the content of the article, but if we go right down near the base of the, the bottom of the article, um, it kind of gets back into the uh, uh, the meat and potatoes of uh, of what we're looking at here. And you know, it's it's a it's a custom lens. Well, it, I shouldn't say it's custom. They just didn't make very many of them. We don't even really need to talk about the exact lens, but it was very identifiable because it's pink and it has a serial number uh, in uh, in the sale. And he's trying to get law enforcement and eBay to um, to interact. Uh, the article has not been updated uh, since it was originally posted, uh, and hopefully he'll make some progress in there. But have you ever had any equipment stolen, or what do you do to protect your equipment, which may have resulted in it never being stolen? Uh, well, I have business insurance for a pretty high amount because uh, we do go out with you know a, quite a bit of pre-production equipment, and I'm on film sets once in a while where there's a lot of you know you fill up a couple vehicles with as much gear as you can possibly find and hope that uh, you didn't forget anything. But uh, yeah, I do have that, and I just keep a record of you know serial numbers and gear coming in and out at all times, uh, and because I don't have an office or anything like that, you know, that means I'm keeping pretty careful tabs on everything. Uh, that is my solution. And as he mentions in this article, uh, do not leave equipment in a car. Um, you know, I, we did have a shoot uh, for the camera store a while back and just threw a couple Pelican cases, left it in uh, one of our assistance cars. And of course, when we came back, the windows were smashed and they had the Pelican cases, which just had, battery chargers and you know some usb cables in them because we were out shooting with the equipment but i do think a lot of people if they can tell that there's a professional photo shoot going on they walk past a car that looks like it might have some photo gear in it uh, you're really setting yourself up for the same kind of incident that happened to this author uh, you mentioned insurance and uh, i also have business insurance as well and it, it covers me uh, for all sorts of stuff if i'm doing an art show and uh, there was a few years back i did uh, kempenfest is the the big art show here in my city and uh, there was a storm that was producing like green colored clouds and threatening to generate tornadoes and such and some people's booths at the art show because it's out outdoors were completely blown into the lake uh, my insurance would cover that my insurance would cover uh, if somebody was trying to steal my artwork in that booth and the booth were to be blown over with them inside and they were injured and then sued me uh, because that's what you can legally do. My insurance would cover me. It, it would cover everything. Uh, and you want to have comprehensive business insurance if you are a photographer. In some cases, your home insurance will cover photo gear. Uh, if you're completely unprofessional, haven't made a penny at it, it's just hobbyist equipment, uh, and it might be stolen from your house. Check that. Check car mm -hmm. insurance, whether or not your car insurance would cover anything stolen out of your car and what the value limits are on that. But insurance is the key to making sure that you don't have any issues uh, in that regard. 
And uh, you know what, if, if I were to lose a unique lens, well, I don't have many lenses that are purely unique. I could find another one. This prototype lens from Lao was an exception to that. I got to make sure nobody breaks in and takes it. Um, but uh, I do have to send that back in a couple of days. So, uh, so it'll will, be gone I, by the time this goes out. So don't bother trying to take Don's. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the, the point is that you know, we, we have to be careful. And, and especially like I've done a lot of traveling in Eastern Europe and uh, we've done uh, backpacking treks and uh, and I've taken expensive equipment along with me. And there's only so much that you can take before it's noticeable yeah. that that's expensive photo gear, right? Like just by the size of your camera bag looks like, okay, well, that's a big bag and that guy's got camera stuff in it. That must be, you know, uh, a, a a promising amount of money uh, to any potential uh, thief that's looking at you. And I don't know how many people actually get guns pointed at them. Uh, I do know some personally, but um, those are people that were traveling in some uh, pretty, uh, you know, kind of unlawful areas of Africa uh, and where, you know, if, if you don't pay bribes to just about everybody, then you don't get anything and, and you, yeah. you walk away maybe with your life. So there are still places like that in the world. There are places like that in North America. There are places like that in Europe. Uh, and so just be cautious and protective. I was actually thinking uh, from a previous episode of putting some Apple air tags uh, in my camera bags or, uh, you know, cases and things so that I might be able to have an extra line if something gets misplaced. And I've seen people like put these tags in the mail once they've been activated and see exactly where they're moving around. And, uh, and that might be a, a useful technology in the future. But Jordan, you also mentioned something very important, serial numbers, right? You yeah. record them all? Uh, yeah, everything. Yeah. And especially if you've got pre-production stuff, I think you, you're mandated to by, uh, by whoever is loaning you that equipment to make sure that all of that is recorded and yeah. registered and, uh, and understood that if it goes missing, it's on you. Uh, but if it shows up anywhere else, then you know exactly, you know, who it came from and, uh, uh, and, and who it belongs to. Because well, you, don't actually you could just do what you do and demand that you get serial number two of a product. So then it's very easy for you to remember. That's the best way to go about it. Uh, there you go. I, I should do that more often. Thank you for that. Um, anyhow, um, this, uh, this uh, was it a Kipon uh, Ibelux uh, 40 millimeter F0.85 lens, which I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think wide open, the author contests this, but I don't think any F0.85 lens wide open is going to be a sharp lens. No. I think it's going to be characteristic. Yep. I think it's going to have a nice feel that, you know, if you loved the style that that lens produced, um, then you'd want to get, you know, you don't want to get it back, right? Yep. Uh, and, and find another copy, but they might be hard to come by. Um, so there you go. Uh, protect your gear, people get insurance and, and insurance doesn't have to cost a lot. I'm in the process of renewing my business insurance. Uh, and I've got to go with a new company because my, the scope of my business has changed over yeah. the years and the previous insurer doesn't want to insure me anymore. Um, so I've got new quotes coming in at the end of this week, um, because I need somebody that's going to, uh, insure, you know, book sales in transit and uh um you know the fact that i go after people for copyright infringement and uh, they could counter sue me if right. uh if that was the case and insurance has to cover those types of things as well so uh insurance um and 
that ends that story. And uh, that was our final story. We had five this week, but we still have picks of the week. I've got an interesting one. I hope you do as well, Jordan. But before I hear it, uh, where can people find all of your musings about uh, cinema lenses and cameras that you love and cameras that you hate? I love those. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where are you found online? I mean, the big place is DP Review TV, and I hope they'll let me monologue more about cinema lenses in the future. Uh, so that's our YouTube channel. We do two episodes a week on that with my partner in crime, Chris Nichols, uh, that everybody knows. So definitely check that out if you aren't already. And then uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm that Jordan Drake, because um, there are many Jordan Drakes. So I am that, that one. Jordan Drake. There we go. Uh, thank you, sir. And um, why, why don't you start off with your with your pick? Okay. Uh, I was talking to a young photographer this week uh, about lighting a little bit, and uh, they were just really struggling. Uh, they had a big, expensive softbox with actually quite a nice light. It was an aperture um, cob light, throws a lot of output on them. Um, and they were really getting frustrated because of the amount of spill. They just had light bouncing all around their studio space. Uh, it's a problem that you always come up with. And uh, I mentioned grids or uh, egg crates, some people call them, and he had no idea what I was talking about. So I thought I would uh, mention it just in case some of your listeners are in uh, a similar place. Uh, so often when we grab a softbox, we expect that it's going to soften the light, which is in the name there. Uh, and it's also going to control the direction of the light. And it actually doesn't do a great job of the second thing on its own. No, in fact, it, softening light inherently spreads Just, it everywhere. Exactly. Right? And so it's the opposite of control. So you might want soft light, but generally you don't also want flat light. You want some contrast in the shot. Just adding some grids, which used to be really expensive. I remember there was a time where a company called Light Tools had the patent for them. And, you know, a little set of Velcro things that stuck together would be two, three hundred dollars. Uh, that has gone away along with the company Light Tools. So now they're very affordable. You know, you're looking like 15 to 30 dollars for a good pair of them from China or for a good set rather. Uh, and you would be amazed the benefits it can bring to your lighting, just being able to better control things because it seems like everybody's just working with large soft light right now. This is the absolute first accessory that I would try using. Um, do you use anything like this on a smaller scale, Don? Like, um, or are you generally well, just flagging? Uh, generally flagging. Uh, the, the, the challenge on a small scale is... Um, there's only so much that you can do, uh, in, like you can't do the exact same thing, yeah, right? It scales it's, it's, so much. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's not going to scale. Um, but what, what I typically will use is, uh, led flashlights, which have a bit of a spotlight and they're, they're fairly directional, but you can modify that light in some interesting ways. Um, I've, uh, I, I've made some contraptions that, uh, they've involved, of course I have. Uh, that I think the latest one that I had used was I took a uh, piece of paper towel and, uh, and some gaffer's tape. And so what I did is I taped the paper towel directly over the lens of an LED flashlight. And I've got some three-inch thick gaffer's tape. And I just taped that around the outer rim mm -hmm. such that it's holding the, um, the paper towel in place, which is acting as a diffuser. 
on the body of the flashlight, but you've got this uh, almost like a, a lens hood type of design coming out from the flashlight itself. So you've got a softened light, but you also have this sort controlled of uh, beam, yeah. this controlled beam, uh, and uh, and that that's worked well. And again, I'm not paying anybody for this. I'm just making it up as I see. Okay, well, I need a tiny spot of soft light. Well, that's how I make it. Uh, I, I should commercialize such products. I probably make a lot of money <laughs> filling that niche, but I've just told you how to do it yourself for free. So I'm destroying my own, my own market. It's like a discount for listening to this podcast. Get a free light modifier. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, I've done some things and, and of course, flagging, uh, basically casting shadows on things yeah. uh, will allow you to, uh, you know, create the contrast that you need. I do that a lot with my, uh, water droplet refraction work where you want the foreground to be predominantly in shadow, maybe not entirely. And so whatever I'm flagging with might be translucent, um, or it might be solidly opaque. And you just put that in, in the way so that the light that's hitting the background is brighter than the light that's hitting the foreground. And I'm just doing this with all sorts of tabletop stuff. It's just, you've seen my tabletop stuff, Jordan. It's eccentric. Transcendent. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but hey, I've got another thing to put on that table, and that's my pick of the week. Um, this is a, a tiny little camera. Uh, I picked up, I saw an announcement that Polaroid, uh, formerly the Impossible Project, now their holding company owns the majority of the Polaroid brand, so they can use it again. Mm -hmm. um, they made a new Polaroid camera, the Polaroid Go. And it is a tiny, cute little Polaroid instant camera. Uh, it takes uh, cartridges of film that uh, hold uh, eight images at a time. And uh, what can I tell you? It works. You, uh, you need to go uh, online right now and look at it and all of its adorableness because it'll warm your heart. It's so it, cute. It is thing. just so, so cute. And, you know, it, the, the viewfinder is actually better than the old Polaroid viewfinders by far. Hmm. Um and uh, I, I handed this to my daughter and told her to take a picture of, of me and my wife sitting on the couch. And she did. And it worked. And she was just so thrilled with it. It was a fun experience for her. The film's expensive. I get yeah. that. Most instant film is still. And the frames are small. You get a small instant camera. You're going to have a small uh, frame uh, as a resulting piece. But um, because it's modern, um, the battery is not in the cartridge. The battery is in the camera body itself. It's got a little USB port on the side to charge it. Um, and it's got a little indicator of how many frames are left uh, on the top of it. You can choose to turn the flash on or off. Um, but beyond that, it's just simple. Uh, it's got, when you take a picture, it has a, uh, a frame shield that will kind of come up and you're supposed to leave the photo under darkness for at least a couple of minutes uh, just while all the photochemistry kind of spills itself out. And oh, it's not as great as the former Polaroid glory days were in terms right. of the end result in color and what have you. They're getting better because yeah, uh, I've, I've had some impossible project film over the years and the first ones were so bad. Uh, you could barely call it color. It was just tinted. Um, and, and so this is, this is much closer to uh, what I remember Polaroid images being. And, uh, and I think it'll get better. I can't remember how much I paid for it. Uh, I think I got an early bird pricing on it. But uh, if you just want something fun, and, and I've realized for me that film photography has to be fun 
Yeah. It has to be convenient. It has to be fun. And this does it. So if I have a family gathering, uh, which I really hope I can do again soon, um, and then I can let my daughter take a family photo with, you know, my mom and whoever else comes by and just kind of stick that on the fridge or give it to them as a memento. Um, this will be a return to normalcy for me to have that novelty as just something fun and as a conversation piece. And I will periodically buy more film for this little camera. I I was just happy with how easy it was to use. The only uh, detriment that, that it has is, again, how small the frame size is. But Yeah, what is the actual uh, frame size? Like, is it an Instax Mini kind of size? or? Uh, well, l- let me find out here, uh, Jordan. Let no, me, that's uh, going to cost you $2, Don. Don't do it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a picture here. And... Uh, and, and here we go. There we that go. is I, the greatest and best sound. That, that is <laughs> exactly. So, uh, of course, this is just a, a wasted frame now. Uh, but, I mean, I, I don't have a... Yeah, a so it's still speed. square. That's cool. It's it, not it a two-by-three ratio. It is still square. Yeah. Exactly. It's still square. Uh, and uh, it's just simple. Uh, simple, tiny, and it works. It's not so small that it's uh, unrecognizably useless, but it's, I mean, eh, it's about half the area of a regular Polaroid, uh, a Polaroid film uh, uh, print. So it's just big go. enough. It won't be compatible with the much less expensive Fujifilm Instax. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, and I haven't had my hands on those, but uh, anyhow, now there's five frames left on you can have to send that in the mail to me don uh the flash went off so the screen is going to be just complete glare uh and you'll see the mess on my desk so it's art okay (laughs) it's art there you go jordan uh thank you for being on this episode of photo geek weekly i've loved having your opinions here i'm gonna have to have you on again at some point very soon um and uh and to all of our listeners thank you for listening to another episode sorry for missing last week i've been dealing with books uh so i'm gonna try to make it on a regular basis moving forward but if i miss a week please forgive me because i got stuff to ship and it is a logistical marathon over here uh so i appreciate your patience with all that said thank you to the listeners and uh i I welcome all possible feedback and to those with cameras in your hands at least for us right now uh, i'm unvaccinated it's time to stay in and shoot